hope you're, hope you're all awake. You know, mid-afternoon is one of those times when everybody kind of does a little dive, but I uh, hope that uh, the uh, time will be stimulating. We left off yesterday with the situation of the Orthodox churches in America right about the time of the Russian Revolution in 1917. You'll remember that, generally speaking, there was a at least a canonical uh, unity of the Orthodox churches in America at that time. There was one canonically established diocese, the uh, Russian mission, uh, and yet there were still uh, the beginnings of rumblings of uh, appeals and desire to, for the ethnically oriented immigrant churches to be related in some formal fashion to the churches of their uh, motherlands. I may have created an impression yesterday that I didn't intend in, uh, to. I wanted to just take a moment and say I, I don't want to minimize the accomplishments of the immigrant community, the immigrant peoples, in establishing their orthodox life and communities. They, uh, uh, the emphasis that I've been making about an American uh, orthodoxy does not mean that that uh, these immigrant communities should be slighted in, in any way. And there were some notable uh, successes uh, in building churches. And these churches were built at great sacrifice by the uh, individuals that were in them. Everything from, from uh, making baklava and selling it to uh, uh, any and all comers to uh, you know, ethnic dinners to uh, digging in their own pockets and, and in addition to the funding that sometimes came from the old countries, uh, particularly the, the Russian Tsar was quite willing to part with some dollars at uh, rubles, I guess, at a particular, particular point in, in uh, time. I also wanted to mention that there were two other people who had been canonized as saints who have served, have served uh, in the United States at this particular period, at the turn of the century. Uh, one of them is John Kucharov, who was the pastor of Holy Trinity Cathedral in Chicago, Illinois, at the uh, turn of the century. In fact, he was uh, the founding priest there. The community in Chicago uh, was given a great impetus by the, uh, the World's Parliament of Religions in Chicago in 1893. Do you remember I mentioned that just briefly yesterday? And uh, in fact, as one of the exhibits at the World's Parliament of Religions, a, a active, full uh, Orthodox church was built uh, for people to come in and, and see at the, at the Parliament. And actually, that served as a, the foundation for the Orthodox community there. Now, they eventually moved that particular building out of downtown Chicago out to Streeter, Illinois, which is a little farming community out in the, the countryside. And uh, a new church was built in Chicago that became uh, Holy Trinity Cathedral. At first, they met at the, on the second floor of a business in downtown Chicago. And then uh, some land was purchased, which at the time was a prairie, and now is right in the heart of the west side of Chicago, not too far from the United Center, where the Chicago Bulls play their, uh, play their games. Uh, but the building was actually commissioned and designed, commissioned by Archbishop Tikhon and designed by the great architect Louis Sullivan. Uh, those of you that are familiar with architecture might remember that name. He's done a number of notable, uh, notable things. But the building, that particular building was built with both the combination of the money from the 
Tsar, he contributed about 12,000 rubles or so to the construction of the building plus the uh, sacrifices of the people. I guess the point I'm trying to get at there uh, is that there are a large number of these immigrant ethnic churches that were built at great sacrifice to the, to the people. Whatever unity there was and whatever vision there was that Archbishop Tikhon had had for a par set of uh, parallel ethnic communities that were still related in a common uh, synod, the Russian Revolution in 1917 basically destroyed any kind of prospect uh, for that. And I'd like to look at several different complications that came from, from that, partly uh, as a result of the breakdown of communications between the United States and Russia, partly because of political considerations and partly also because of the various ethnic um, uh, situation, the ethnic consciousness that was developed among uh, the, the uh, people. The first orthodox ecclesiastical body to be organized in America on a purely ethnic basis and independent of the Russian diocese was the Greek archdiocese of North and South America. You'll recall, I said yesterday, that 59 parishes by 1916 uh, claimed a kind of a loose connection to the church in Greece rather than to the church in uh, the, the Russian diocese in America. Remember the incorporation uh, intrigue that took place that left Archbishop Tikhon standing outside the door of uh, one of the churches on Holy Friday night in New York City. In 1908, the Ecumenical Patriarchate, um, well, until 1908, the Ecumenical Patriarchate had claimed jurisdiction ultimately over all of the uh, Greeks and the churches in the diaspora, what he called the diaspora, based upon Canon 28 of the Council of Chalcedon uh, in 451. Now, Canon 28, you may recall, says that the churches in the barbarian lands are, quote unquote, are under the uh, jurisdiction of the Ecumenical Patriarchate, and so they viewed the uh, North and South America as being barbarian lands, and uh, therefore under their jurisdiction. Uh, however, there was an incredible amount of pressure being put by nationalist Turks upon the Patriarchate itself, and in fact, uh, there was concern in the Patriarchate that what would indeed happen 15 years later was about to, and that is the ethnic cleansing of Turkey of all uh, Greek persons. And I use that term, I know that's a modern term, but, but that's really what be, took place in the 1920s. The uh, Orthodox population of Turkey in 1923 was about 600,000. And uh, when we were there in 1985, it was about 5,000. And now I'm told it's down to less than 2,000 uh, Orthodox people in in, uh, in Turkey. Now that's considerable change. But because of the fear of that and wanting to uh, stave off some of the pressures from the, the uh, Turkish government, the ecumenical patriarch gave authority to the Archbishop of Athens to oversee the Greek communities in uh, North America in 1908. So uh, that, however, wasn't really didn't create a, a uh, specific administrative jurisdiction because of internal political problems in Greece and, as you might remember, 1914, World War I uh, began, and that kept 
a lot of uh, communication uh, from taking place. So there really wasn't any uh, specific bishop who came to America to do anything until after the end of World War I in 1918. Um, the Archbishop of Athens in 1918, uh, who was elected, was named Miletius Metaxakis. I think that's how you pronounce the last name. And he has become one of the most interesting and controversial figures in, in uh, uh, Orthodox history in uh, this century because of a number of things that took place uh, during his lifetime. He eventually was patriarch both of Constantinople and of Alexandria, the only person I can remember in history to ever hold two patriarchal offices in his lifetime, as well as uh, being um, the head of the Greek church in, in Greece. Uh, in 1918, he was elected Metropolitan of Athens, and uh, he, he was uh, elected upon the accession. See, they had a political revolution in Greece in 1918. The royalists were overthrown. The, um, a, a Republican type of uh, party under Eleutherios Venizelos was elected uh, to lead Greece, and uh, Venizelos was Metoxicus's uncle. And so... Metoxicus was elected Metropolitan of Athens. Well, of course, that situation, if it's politically based, is going to do a little flip-flop soon. And in 1919, after about a year and a half, um, or 1920, rather, well, let me back up a second. While he was Metropolitan of Athens then, Miletius appointed a um, uh, bishop named Alexander of Rhodostolon to administer the United States. And uh, he... Miletius himself had come to America and left Alexander here to administer the uh, Greek parishes here. In 1920, the Venezuelan party was overthrown in Greece, and the royalists came back in power, and Miletius found himself having to hit the road again uh, and was politically, so to speak, deposed as Archbishop of Athens. So what did he do? He came to the United States, maintaining, of course, canonically that he was still the Metropolitan of Athens, and therefore, since the Ecumenical Patriarch had given the Metropolitan of Athens authority over the Greek churches in America, that he was the legitimate head of the Greek churches in the United States. So with his um, arrival in 1920, in 19, then the, uh, diocese of, uh, the Greek Archdiocese of America began to be organized. Now, it wasn't formally consecrated or begun at that particular point. In an interesting twist of events, in November of 1921, Miletius was elected Patriarch of Constantinople. And so uh, one of the first things he did, in fact, in his enthronement address, he said he, quote, understood the measure in which the name of orthodoxy would be exalted if the two million Orthodox Christians of America were united into one united ecclesiastical organization as an American Orthodox Church, unquote. So his first action then, or one of his first actions as patriarch, was to transfer back the jurisdiction over the Greek communities in America from Athens to Constantinople, to the ecumenical uh, patriarchate, where it remains uh, to this day. Uh, again, during the 1920s, the uh, 
Greek churches in America were divided themselves by this political controversy that was going on in Greece. You had the royalist factions and the Venezuelan factions, and it was a really a nightmare. And uh, Bishop Alexander, who was there for 10 years, here for 10 years in the United States, uh, found himself unable to deal with all of the uh, differing pressures. Uh, by the way, in 1922, uh, officially, the Greek Archdiocese of North America was founded. That's when they date their, um, their founding to. Um, because of all these problems, uh, Miletius decided he would send a representative to America to figure out what to do. Um, Damaskinos of Corinth was sent and he was able to uh, produce a plan that called for the appointment of a new archbishop and the reassignment of all uh, but one of the other Greek bishops that had been sent to uh, America to help Alexander to new seas in Greece. And in 1930 then, uh, Archbishop Athenagoras of Corfu was appointed the Archbishop of North and South America. Athenagoras is a name you need to remember because he is one of the major um, figures, again, in orthodoxy in this, in this country and in the world in this century. Athenagoras was uh, a man of commanding personality. Uh, he was a very charismatic individual and was able to uh, unite many of the different factions in the, in the Greek community simply by force of his personality. He would go into a place and overwhelm them. <laughs> And, and bring him into, into unity. So instead of, uh, uh, but he also didn't want to just leave things loose, and so in 1931, Athenagoras um, brought, uh, had a clergy laity congress that adopted uh, bylaws uh, for the Archdi Greek Archdiocese of North America. Now listen to this. According to the bylaws adopted by the Greek Archdiocese in 1931, uh, membership is limited to, quote, all persons of Greek descent, regardless of place of birth, who are over 21 years of age and who accept to submit to the faith's canons, doctrines, worship, and ecclesiastical authorities of the ecumenical patriarchate, and the Greek Archdiocese of North and South America, and who pay unfailingly their membership dues, unquote. Now, what do you notice there? Greek by descent. In other words, the first time uh, that there has been an explicitly ethnic qualification for membership in any Orthodox church in the United States. Now, this was not just for clergy. This is, according to the bylaws of 1931, that was for membership in a parish under the Greek Archdiocese of North and South America. The parish was also to have as its aim, second only to, quote, the preservation and propagation of the Christian faith, unquote, the, the quote, preservation of the original language of the gospel, unquote, Greek, which meant that the secondary, the primary focus of the Archdiocese was the to be the preservation and propagation of the gospel, but the secondary purpose was to maintain Greek language and culture, which meant, of course, that the liturgical life of the Greek archdiocese was in what language? Greek. Greek. Further, 
No priest would be accepted in a parish unless he had, and I quote, from the bylaws of 1931, the qualifications of priest of the Greek Orthodox Church was in good standing with his superior ecclesiastical authority, was Greek by race, and had been appointed by the Archbishop of North and South America, unquote. Now, to be fair, that's been rescinded about 40 years later. But um, that, again, is the establishment of a, uh, a jurisdiction based completely upon an ethnic uh, identity. And I would suggest that here, the Greek Orthodox immigrant church had reached its fullest uh, ecclesiastical expression. And, and if I may be so bold, I think that borders on, if not crosses over, a line of uh, philatism. The term philatism arose in uh, conjunction with discussions with the ecumenical patriarchate itself in the 1870s. The issue was uh, on Bulgarian territory, there were uh, churches that were of Greek nationality as well as churches that were of uh, native Bulgarian uh, nationality, and the question was whether those Greek churches should be under the ecumenical patriarchate or under the Bulgarian ecclesiastical authorities. And the ecumenical patriarch's decision in 1870 was that they should stay under the local government of the Bulgarian church and not appeal to an outside ethnic jurisdiction because that would be what they, the patriarchate called the heresy of philatism. Now, the word philatism comes from what word, Father John? Well, no. It, it comes from phusis, which is nature, and therefore it's that sense that I, true identity is in the nature the ethnic nature of one's uh, descent. And the philatism, therefore, is the heresy. This is what the patriarchate called it, the heresy that uh, ethnic considerations take precedence over the gospel of Christ and the pan-human, uh, uh, the, the universal character of the uh, church as a whole. And therefore, that was ruled as a heresy. Now, here you have 60 years later a situation in which the Greek archdiocese in North America is being set up by bylaw. I'm not talking about just attitudes, but by the actual statutes of the archdiocese according to a philatistic model. You had to be Greek by race to be a member of the parish, of Greek descent, rather, and Greek by race to be a clergyman in that. Now, the, the uh, missionary orientation of that particular uh, organization might be considered to be suspect. Maybe. Under the leadership, though, uh, even giving the, given this, under the leadership of uh, Archbishop Athenagoras, the Greek communities prospered. Uh, unity was actually built. The churches began to uh, uh, grow. They founded a seminary, uh, Holy Cross Seminary, first at uh, Pomfret, Connecticut, and then uh, moved to um, Brookline, Massachusetts, where it is. Um, they had uh, a number of other uh, archdiocesan organizations begun, and they actually, 
Athenagoras was a major positive figure overall for um, the Greek Orthodox community. Now, uh, in 1948, I'm getting a little bit ahead of the story here. I'll talk a little bit more about this tomorrow. But in 1948, Athenagoras himself was elected Patriarch of Constantinople. And as a, uh, just an indication of how important he had become in the American scene, uh, he was flown to Istanbul on uh, President Truman's own plane, uh, air, what would have been Air Force One, flew, uh, flew him to Constantinople to take, um, to take the throne there. All right, that's the Greek, the Greek archdiocese is established then in 1922. Let's shift our gears a little bit to the, back to the, to the Russian mission uh, that was most directly affected by the events of the Bolshevik Revolution, which, as you recall, took place in October 1917. Even before the revolution, the reality of World War I had cut uh, financial support from the mother church to her American daughter. Um, I looked it up last night, I, and the church was uh, receiving about 500,000 rubles per year uh, at that time, support from the uh, Patriarchate in Moscow. Um, this left the American diocese in a state of total financial collapse. Uh, they didn't have the um, support from the poor immigrant communities, uh, nor the support from the uh, motherland to be able to, uh, to, to support things. So um, also, they had a leadership vacuum at this particular point. Bishop uh, Tikhon had been recalled in the early first decade of the uh, century, and Archbishop uh, Platon had been uh, sent to the United States. He went back to uh, Russia and took a diocese in Odessa in Kherson in uh, 1914. His successor was Archbishop Evdokim, who went to the All-Russian Sobor in 1917, uh, you know, which you recall after the first, there were two revolutions in Russia in 1917. Do you, re do you remember that? The first one actually overthrew the Tsarist government the, and the Kerensky government was set up. And then in that uh, milieu, the church held its first All-Russian Sobor and elected a patriarch and uh, had reforms that were brought, brought forth. And then in the fall, was the Bolshevik Revolution, which overthrew the um, democratically, uh, democratically based government of, of uh, Kerensky. Well, in the midst of all of that, uh, Archbishop Evdokim was in Russia and ended up not coming back to the United States. Um, so the diocese was left in the hands of Archbishop Alexander Nemlovsky, who was, um, shall we say, unable to financially manage the affairs of the diocese. Part of it was, was the situation, no money coming in. Another part, though, was his own incompetence, frankly. He, was, uh, he, he had been left a large debt, and he continued to negotiate the debt by, encouraging, by incurring other debts, mortgaging properties, church properties. St. Tikhon's monastery was mortgaged heavily in order to pay off other debts, and the end result was a total financial chaos and, and collapse, virtual collapse, over the next uh, few years. That left a whole uh, another chain of dissatisfaction going on in the uh, Russian church here. In uh, 1919, at an All-American Council held in Cleveland, Ohio, 
uh, Archbishop Alexander was formally elected the primate of the North American diocese. Uh, the diocese was reorganized then according to the reforms proposed at the All-Russian Sobor of 1917 and 18. They established a, a presbyter's council, a new financial administration, and so forth, and set up a basically uh, autonomous form of government. In other words, a form of government that would be able to function even if there was no communication with the church uh, in, in Russia. The All-Russian Sobor had contemplated the establishment of metropolitan districts, which would be granted a relative degree of autonomy, and one of the districts was to be the United States, or the North American, um, North American mission. So um, the canonical position of the, of the diocese was confirmed uh, with edicts issued by Patriarch Tikhon in, in uh, Moscow. The first confirmed Archbishop Alexander, and then the second, uh, which was issued on October 7, 1920, directed each diocese, unable to have regular communication with the proper church authority to conduct its own affairs independently until such time as it should be possible to resume regular relations with Moscow. Now, remember, this was a period of tremendous upheaval in Russia. There was civil war going on. Uh, the whites and, uh, and the red army, white armies and the red armies were fighting. Different parts of the country were under control of, of uh, uh, different people. Tikhon himself was under an incredible amount of pressure by the Soviet uh, authorities. Um, and so in a practical decision, you know, you, you say you basically Tikhon was saying, do what you can do out there uh, while all of this is going on. When we're able to reestablish communication, we'll do that. But in the meantime, if you can't communicate, just do what you have to, what you have to do, and it would be under, uh, under his authority. So the American diocese, being unable to communicate with the patriarchate because of the political situation, uh, found itself in a de facto state of autonomy that, at least temporarily, could be construed as canonically valid because Patriarch Tikhon had directed them to do that if they, couldn't, if they couldn't communicate. Now, in Russia itself, the church began to go through a number of uh, uh, struggles. The Soviets wanted to destroy the church in Russia. Um, it was the single fa factor in Russian society that was inimically uh, opposed to everything that they stood for. And so they wanted to either destroy it outright if they could, um, they, and they did try by bartering some. Uh, John Kucharov, who was the priest at Holy Trinity in Chicago, uh, was the first clergy martyr of the Bolshevik Revolution in December of 1917. He was killed just outside of Petrograd, earlier St. Petersburg, by a, an unruly mob that he was castigating for their excesses uh, in uh, in, their, in their rebellion, they took him and drug him across a railroad track until he was um, killed. He was canonized in the 1990s by the uh, Russian church. Um, I call him St. John of Chicago. Now, I don't know what they, what they call, but I, you know, being from that area, I like to have that, uh, that connection there. Um, where they couldn't kill, they put pressure. Uh, Patriarch Tikhon found himself in prison, uh, periodically in and out of prison. Uh, many of the, the bishops um, 
did so, uh, were, were uh, placed in prison at various uh, points of time. But also, they tried to destroy the church by a kind of an infiltration and uh, propaganda uh, campaign. They, they confiscated property, they fomented schism, they infiltrated the ranks of the hierarchy, putting secret police-type persons in the, uh, in the hierarchy. Um, they fomented one particular schism that is important for our purposes here, the, the Living Church. It was called the Living Church, which was uh, actively encouraged by the Soviet regime, and it had as its goal the radical reform of many of the practices of the church in Russian society. For example, they advocated a um, restoring a married episcopate to the church, um, allowing the remarriage of widowed and divorced uh, priests, uh, advocated calendar changes, uh, ad and, and various other uh, radical reforms. One of the um, dissident clergy from the United States who was uh, angry with Archbishop Alexander for his financial mismanagement, among other things, and then he, he was suspended for his insubordinate attitude by Archbishop Alexander, his name was John Kodrovsky, went to uh, Russia in 1923 and uh, was consecrated a bishop by the living church people in Moscow and was sent back to the United States with the active encouragement of the Soviet regime to try to take control of the Russian uh, church communities in the United States. And in fact, a uh, major legal battle ensued. Uh, Kodrovsky filed suit in American uh, courts trying to get the property of all of the Russian churches in uh, the United States. Now, this was a very important uh, event. successful except in one situation. He had tried to get 115 churches. He ended up actually, though, uh, getting one, and it was a significant one. It was St. Nicholas Cathedral in New York City, the, uh, the cathedral of the Russian Metropolia itself. And uh, the argument, of course, was that he was the legitimate um, exarch of the Moscow Patriarchate, and therefore that cathedral should be under, uh, under the, uh, the true church of, of uh, Moscow at that particular time. In order to avoid having their properties taken, uh, many of the local churches um, resorted to uh, the quirk in American law of changing the bylaws of the uh, parishes, and the parishes were uh, removed from being directly uh, the property is being directly controlled by the Metropolitan Archbishop, and the rights were vested in a board of trustees, property rights vested in a board of trustees, with the Metropolitan Archbishop as the chairman of the board of trustees. But property rights inherited then in the local parish and not in the diocese as a whole, and by that move, they were able to keep 115 parishes out of the, out of the hands of Kodrovsky. But the long-term effect of that was to remove some of the Episcopal authority in overseeing the churches of, that, uh, of the, the Russian Metropolia uh, and creates a kind of an interesting relational situation. That's, this is how, by the way, you'll see parishes jumping uh, from the OCA to the Moscow Patriarchate to the Senate abroad and back. And that's how they're able to do it, because the property rights are vested in the local 
situation rather than in the bishop, or at least they were back in those uh, earlier, uh, earlier days. So in 1925, St. Nicholas Cathedral in New York went to uh, Kodrovsky and uh, his group. Now, two years earlier, 1923, Archbishop Alexander decided uh, it was best for the church if he left, and he went back, um, back to Russia. And he requested that uh, Metropolitan Platon, P-L-A-T-O-N, who had ruled the church in the... Um, 1908 to 1914, uh, take over the reins again uh, in, in 1923. So, so the, uh, or 1922. So the, the third All-American Sobor in 1922 was convened to assure the proper transfer of authority to Metropolitan um, Platon. In conjunction with this transfer, and in conjunction with Kodrovsky's situation, Patriarch Tikhon, uh, no doubt under the influence of the Soviet authorities, issued a statement accusing Metropolitan Platon of engaging in, quote, public acts of counter-revolution directed against the Soviet power and of disastrous consequences to the Orthodox Church, unquote. Uh, by the way, uh, Dmitry Pospielewski, in his book, The Russian Church Under the Soviet Regime, uh, maintains that that, uh, that, that uh, statement, he thinks, was written not by, by Tikhon, actually, but by another person uh, and issued in Tikhon's name. But the, the uh, result was uh, that, at least by the intent, was to dismiss Platon from leadership of the American uh, diocese. Now, interestingly, the way that it's written, the, he says Platon is going to be dismissed, but he will be dismissed effective upon delivery of this message to him by his successor, who never showed up. So there's also some discussion about whether or not Tikhon was, if Tikhon actually wrote it, whether he was just playing with this, doing what the Soviet authorities told him to do, depose Platon, but setting up circumstances in which it could never be carried out, and therefore Platon remain, remains in, in power, so there's a little... <laughs> in any event, uh, Platon said he never got the message uh, directly. It was printed in the, in the Soviet press, it was printed in uh, other Russian language uh, newspapers in the United States, but he never got a letter. So he said, hey, I'm still bishop, and <laughs> kept on acting, uh, acting that way. Um, so, uh, let's see. Because of all of this tangle, in 1924, the All-American Council was convened, uh, another All-American Council was convened in Detroit April 2nd to 4th, 1924, reaffirming, first of all, Platon as their uh, leader, uh, secondly, trying to deal with this Kodrovsky issue, and uh, they resolved to declare the Russian diocese in America as a, quote, temporarily self-governing church governed by its elected archbishop together with the Council of Bishops, a council composed of elected clergy and laity, and periodic councils of the entire American church, uh, unquote. Uh, basically, what they did was set themselves up then as an independent, uh, not totally independent, but an autonomous diocese so that uh, the only person that would head them up would be somebody they elected 
who might be able to get someday the approval of the Patriarchate of Moscow, but they didn't want to have Moscow interfering with the internal affairs of uh, what was going on here. And further, this council categorically denied Kodrovsky's claims to authority and property in the church. By the way, did I mention that Kodrovsky was a married man? This, the bishop who had come back, he, he was a married priest who'd gone to Moscow, gotten consecration by the living church as a bishop, and come back here uh, as a um, uh, married bishop. This de facto estrangement between Moscow and the North American church lasted until 1933. Uh, Patriarch Tikhon died in 1925, and uh, no new patriarchal elections were allowed to take place for 20 years. Um, the, the patriarchal locum tenens, that's the person who occupies the throne in the absence of the patriarch, was Metropolitan Peter, who also was imprisoned in Siberia. And uh, the acting locum tenens, so you have the patriarch, the, he's pulled away, the locum tenens, he's pulled away and imprisoned. The acting locum tenens, you see what the Soviets are doing? They're just working their way down to somebody they, they can put the screws to and get whatever cooperation they want. Uh, the acting local tenants, Metropolitan Sergius, was carrying out the duties of patriarchal administration. Now, in 1927, Metropolitan Sergius began requiring all the clergy under the Moscow Patriarchate to sign a written promise of loyalty to the Soviet government and a promise not to, in, to oppose the Soviet government in, in any way. This created problems with the... Russian communities outside of the Soviet Union. Metropolitan Platon himself said that that would be uh, like, like uh, uh, almost a treasonous act for an American citizen to proclaim loyalty to uh, any, uh, any foreign uh, government like that. Besides, this Soviet government was actively opposed to the Christian faith, and therefore, why should we be loyal to it? You know, that kind of... Uh, that kind of uh, Thing. However, what began to happen then was anybody who didn't support that, the Russian church began to uh, disavow as being under their spiritual authority, which cuts off the canonical connection between the Patriarch of Moscow and all of the Russian churches in exile. Do you understand what I'm at least saying there? It makes it, you know, if you're, if you're disavowed by the Patriarch, what do you do? or the person acting as the patriarch, Sergius, at that particular point. So in 1933, the Moscow Patriarchate sent a representative, an exarch, to America, uh, Archbishop Benjamin, uh, to try to uh, normalize the relationship between the Moscow Patriarchate and the uh, American diocese. He went to Metropolitan Platon and required him to submit that loyalty oath, which he wouldn't do. Therefore, uh, Benjamin uh, established a separate jurisdiction, um, the Patriarchal Exarchate, which uh, was directly then under the Moscow uh, Patriarchate in the United States. So this is the formation of a second formal Russian jurisdiction in the United States at this point. You see, okay, you have the Russian... Metropolia, the mission, 
And then you have Kodrovsky doing his thing, but he only ended up with one church, and he kind of drops off the scene as being really important because there wasn't much left, you know. Uh, although what happened was uh, Kodrovsky took, or, or uh, Benjamin took the St. Nicholas Cathedral from Kodrovsky, and it be, became under the Moscow Patriarchate, and uh, still remains, by the way, as the uh, Moscow Patriarchate's cathedral in, in uh, New York. The most number of parishes that the Moscow Patriarchate ever had directly under it was 50, and that was in the uh, period of 1946-1947. Uh, generally speaking, at 1970, at the time of the autocephaly of the Orthodox Church of America, it was about 30 parishes under the Moscow Patriarchate. And um, just for your own mental note, uh, with the autocephaly in 1970, the formal um, schism was ended between the uh, Russian Metropolia and the Patriarchate of Moscow. And any church that wanted to jump from the Patriarchate of Moscow to the OCA just has, a, has to have a majority vote of the members of that parish. And they're allowed to do that under the terms of the autocephaly granted in 1970. But I'll talk about that a little bit more, uh, you know, more tomorrow. All right, so we have two Russian jurisdictions in America, the, the uh, Russian missionary diocese under Metropolitan Platon and successors. And we have the uh, Moscow Patriarchal uh, Diocese, and we also have the Greek Archdiocese of North and South America that we've looked at so far, okay? Are you with me? Now, I'll briefly mention uh, right now a third Russian uh, jurisdiction. I'll deal with it a little bit more on, on Thursday because their history has been a bit, uh, or my fourth lecture, I guess that's Wednesday? Wednesday, uh, or well, whenever it is. Um, I'll deal with that a little bit, because their history has been a bit uh, convoluted, but it's still, uh, still important. Now, it's very convoluted, so I'm going to try to simplify. Um, the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, what is called the Russian Church Abroad, uh, was organized by a group of bishops who fled their diocese during the Russian Civil War of 1918, 1919, 1920. Um, generally speaking, they were just ahead of the armies, uh, the Red Armies as they were coming through. Metropolitan Platon himself, who was the uh, Archbishop of North America, uh, was on a boat just ahead of the Red Armies coming out of Odessa uh, in 1918. So they found refuge first at Constantinople under the invitation of the uh, ecumenical patriarch to have a, a safe haven, a place to go to, and then uh, at Karlovitz in Yugoslavia under the, uh, the uh, auspices, the, the gracious hospitality of the Patriarch of Serbia. Uh, they were headed uh, by Metropolitan Anthony of Kiev, uh, Anthony Krepovitsky, who was a renowned theologian and uh, leader in the uh, Church of Russia in that, those decades leading up to the, uh, the revolution. He, from all accounts, he was a man of outstanding theological ability and outstanding uh, piety. He was uh, and getting to be older at the time of the um, revolution, but he was the, the, uh, the uh, leading figure of this, this group of uh, 
bishops. Under his leadership, they, the synod tried to establish itself as the unified governing body for all Russian Orthodox outside of uh, Russia. Um, due to a strong mon monarchist sentiment on the synod and uh, due to strong uh, anti-Soviet stands, you can imagine, these were the, the people who had uh, you know, been part of that front wave of warfare almost uh, against the, the uh, unrushing Red Armies, and there were a lot of uh, deep-seated antagonisms toward the Soviet government and the Soviet system, plus the uh, sense that, that uh, the monarchy was the expression of the will of God for the Ru Russian people, and therefore they were calling for a restoration of uh, not only just the monarchy in principle, but the Romanov family to the, uh, the throne of Russia. Because of the, their, their stands, Patriarch Tikhon and the Holy Senate of Moscow in 1922 dissolved the Karlovsky administration, um, said that they no longer had any uh, authority whatsoever. Now, the authority that they had claimed, if I may be so bold here, was that, uh, remember Tikhon's decree in 1920, the dioceses that were cut off from communication with uh, the Patriarchate could set up their own independent administrations. Um, they maintained that that's what they were doing. However, Tikhon and the Patriarchate maintained that once they left their diocese and were canonically replaced by someone, in, someone else in those areas, they no longer had dioceses and thus were no longer uh, able to claim any jurisdiction over any particular uh, situation whatsoever. They were simply a group of bishops who were being treated with hospitality by the Serbian uh, Patriarchate, and Tikhon's position in 1922 was that they're just meddling in affairs and should just split up and go uh, either, um, either return home or they should join the church of the territory in which they were resident. Uh, they should become part of the Patriarchate of Serbia, for example. Um, however, that didn't go over well with them. Oh, uh, also Patriarch Tikhon appointed uh, Metropolitan Evlogi to administer the parishes of Western Europe. Uh, and he, Metropolitan Evlogi, who was a spiritual son of Metropolitan Anthony, uh, the head of the uh, Senate, uh, Metropolitan Evlogi, let me put it this way, made what he later called was a, called a mistake. Out of his reverence and respect for Metropolitan Anthony, Metropolitan Evlogi offered to share the authority that he had been given by the Patriarchate of Moscow over Western Europe with Metropolitan Anthony and the Synod at Karlovitz. In other words, they would work together. Let's work together to administer the Russian Orthodox communities in Western Europe. Well, that offer eventually turned into a warfare that... Uh, for control of the Russian communities uh, in, in uh, Europe. Also, Metropolitan Platon, remember, in North America, uh, at first uh, cooperated in this, uh, in this uh, Senate. However, in 1926, the Senate in exile appointed a uh, bishop to serve in Germany that, uh, and appointed him to serve parishes that were directly under Metropolitan Evlogi without consulting Metropolitan Evlogi and without getting his permission, and, and secondly, 
appointing a person that he didn't want in that auxiliary position. So that created a uh, tension and rupture. And Evlogi walked out of the Senate uh, in exile in 1926 uh, as, as a result. Um, I'll go into more of this later on. There was a continued battle off and on between Evlogi and the Senate in exile. Eventually, 1930 or 31, Evlogi appealed to the Ecumenical Patriarchate of Constantinople and put himself under Constantinople and said, forget this whole, <laughs> this whole thing. And so the Russian Orthodox parishes in Western Europe then were administered under Constantinople for many, many years. Uh, uh, thereafter. Now, uh, the church in the United States periodically participated in this synod in exile um, discussions. Metropolitan Platon for a while in the 20s uh, was in and out of this synod. In, um, under his successor, Metropolitan Theophilus, from 1936 to 1946, the Russian Metropolia and the, the uh, Senate in exile were working together. However, in the aftermath of World War II, the Russian communities had more of an interest in trying to reestablish proper relationships with the newly reestablished Patriarchate of Moscow, and uh, that was unacceptable to the Russian church outside Russia, and that led to a final split between uh, the Senate in exile and um, the uh, Russian Metropolia. In 1950, just to complete our American story, the Senate in Exile moved its headquarters from Munich, uh, Austria, I guess, from Munich to New York and established a third major uh, Russian jurisdiction in the United States. All right, so here we have Greek Archdiocese, Three Russian jurisdictions, the Moscow Patriarchate, the Russian Metropolia, which is the continuation of the old Russian mission to the United States, and the Russian church outside Russia. Now, uh, there were other groups, ethnic groups, that established their own jurisdictions during these decades as well. 1919, at the Cleveland Sobora of the uh, Russian Metropolia, it was um, two bishops were elected to head ethnic dioceses within the Russian mission. The first one was Archimandrite Mederi for the Serbians and Archimandrite uh, Theophan Noli for the uh, Albanians. And the idea was, they, following Archbishop Tikhon's plan, you would have you know, an Albanian diocese and a Serbian diocese and so on underneath the um, Russian mission. However, they believed that they had to get the approval of the Patriarch of Moscow before they could consecrate these men as bishops. The communication never happened. They sent letters, no response ever came from Moscow. Therefore, years went by uh, with these people languishing, wondering whether or not they were ever going to be consecrated or what the communities were going to do or become. Finally, in 1926, Madari, was consecrated a bishop by the Patriarch of Serbia in Belgrade and established the Serbian Orthodox Church in the United States in 1926. Further, uh, Theophan Noli was uh, uh, decided to return to Albania where he had a very stellar uh, career. He, Theophan Noli is a very interesting, uh, interesting person. 
he uh, um, had been a priest for the Albanian community in the United States. He translated the liturgy for the first time in history into the Albanian language. It was uh, heretofore done in Greek. He translated into Albania in, Bo in Albanian in Boston, went back to Albania and introduced the Albanian liturgy in Albania uh, in 1930. Um, he was elected in 1930. No, I'm getting my dates wrong. 1924, he was elected prime minister of, uh, of Albania. <laughs> and he, he spent uh, time in politics. He retired from politics with the change of political winds, you know, how that happens and uh, was elected Metropolitan uh, in uh, 1923 and returned to America in 1932 and established the uh, Albanian diocese in um, uh, North America. So now we have Serbians, Albanians, three Russian dioceses, a, uh, and the, the Greek archdiocese. Now also, there was a growing sense of Ukrainian national pride, both in the Ukraine and among Ukrainian settlers in North America. In fact, one of the immediate results of the revolution in uh, the Soviet Union was an uprising of Ukrainian nationalism. Uh, you know, they felt like, no longer are we under the Tsar, we're going to establish our own uh, kind of thing. They wanted to be freed from the Patriarchate of Moscow. There wasn't much sentiment for establishing from Moscow shall we say, a, an autocephalous or independent Ukrainian church. So a number of leaders in the Ukraine decided they would establish their own church. Now this creates a real interesting situation. They couldn't find any bishops in the Ukraine uh, to uh, consecrate Ukrainian bishops for the Ukrainian church. So they decided that they would consecrate their own. So they had these, sound familiar, Father John? They, they, they had these uh, people, the people meeting council, elected uh, candidates for the episcopate. The people laid hands on the priests. The priests laid hands on the candidate for the episcopate, and they prayed for uh, that person, and that person was recognized as the bishop of the um, Ukrainian church. Now, this is going to be bizarre. There was some concern among these Ukrainians that uh, they had to have the hand of a canonical apostolic bishop laid upon them. Uh, otherwise, there would be no apostolic succession. So they couldn't find a living one. So they took the relics of a bishop, the dead hands of a bishop, and as part of the prayer thing, put the dead hands on the candidate for I'm not kidding. This is where the phrase, the dead hands bishop, you might have heard that phrase, dead hands bishop, uh, came, came from. This is in 1921. Uh, again, the aftermath of the, uh, the revolution. This established the Ukrainian autocephalous Orthodox Church. Now, as you might imagine, this church was not recognized by anybody. <laughs> <laughs> None, none of the, uh, the ecumenical patriarchate was a little bit, uh, shall we say, uh, scandalized by this. The patriarch of Moscow didn't want to have anything to do with it, and uh, so on. So, uh, but this church, nonetheless, caught uh, a lot of the nationalistic fervor, and you might think it didn't flourish, but it did. It did, both in the Ukraine and in North America. 
The, uh, uh, now, let me just connect momentarily to the American situation. A group of Canadian Ukrainians came to the Sobor in 1919 and asked uh, the Russian mission to consecrate a bishop for the Ukrainian community in Canada and to name them the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Bishop, uh, Archbishop Alexander, the head at that time of the Russian mission, was himself a Ukrainian and dismissed their claims and said Ukrainians have no nationality, Ukrainians are really Russian, therefore forget using Ukrainian in the, in the services and we won't do this. Well, the result was anger and frustration toward the, again, that Ukrainian nationalism were being oppressed by the Tsar again, you know, kind of, kind of feeling. So they, in Canada, first appealed to uh, an Antiochian bishop that I'll talk about in the next hour, uh, Germano Shahadi, uh, to try to get some kind of uh, national uh, identity in the church in Canada. They weren't able to really get the connection that they wanted, so what they did was hook up with the Ukrainian self-consecrated people from the Ukraine, and that established then a, uh, the Ukrainian autocephalous Orthodox Church, two of them, one in the United States, and one in Canada, and in fact the one in Canada became a very large uh, group, the one in the United States had eventually ended up by 1990 or so having 92 parishes, and the uh, group in Canada was actually just about the single largest uh, Orthodox group in, uh, in Canada, and they all traced their apostolic succession, or at least most of them, to the dead hands bishops back in, in uh, the Ukraine. Now. Um, to be perfectly candid, the Ukrainians also split a couple of times. So there are a couple of other Ukrainian jurisdictions as well as uh, the Russian jurisdiction, as well as the Greeks, okay? Am I confusing you totally? <laughs> I'll, I'll outline this again just a little bit, but I, the, the next hour, what I want to focus on is, is uh, the Antiochian situation. I want you to see the, the, how all this plays out in a little more detail in one single jurisdiction. Uh, and since many of us are in the Antiochian Archdiocese, it would be helpful probably to get a, uh, a picture of that. So that's what I'll do in the next hour. Okay, in the meantime, let's take a break. <laughs>